The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Before we get started, a quick reminder that the Eat for the Planet cookbook is now available for pre-order. This is the follow-up to my first book titled Eat for the Planet, which made the case for why we urgently need to change our food system and how we can all be a part of that transformation with our food choices. The cookbook is an essential guide for bringing about that change in your own kitchen. The Eat for the Planet cookbook features recipes from brands like Beyond Meat, Veggie Grill, Tofurky, No Evil Foods, Ripple Foods, and from talented chefs like Miyoko Shinner, Chad and Derek Sarno, Peggy Chan, Fran Costigan, Janet Clairbon, and several others. Go to eftp.co slash cookbook to learn more. The book is available on Amazon and everywhere else books are sold. In today's episode, I speak with Min Sai, the founder and CEO of Hodo Foods. Hodo started because Min wanted to make a different kind of tofu company that was going to focus on taste and creating a premium product. We start off the conversation talking about some of the misconceptions surrounding tofu from an environmental and health standpoint. We discuss why Hodo Foods is committed to U.S.-grown all-organic soybeans and ensuring their products taste good and are convenient for consumers. We also talk about how the growth of the plant-based food space in the past few years has impacted their business and why Min believes the next wave is bringing in health into the conversation and why it's time for a re-emergence of tofu in the new age of plant-based foods. We also dive into Hodo Foods' food service business and their deal with Chipotle, which launched back in 2013, and how Hodo Foods has been getting a lot of positive attention lately with some prominent restaurant chains like Chipotle, as well as food leaders like John Mackey of Whole Foods, pushing back against plant-based meats that they consider to be ultra-processed. Today, taste, price, and convenience are the three leading factors for consumers, but transparency is emerging as the fourth factor. We talk about the trend towards transparency in the food and beverage industry, and Min shares why building intellectual property is not necessarily the way to go if you are a food startup. This conversation is about a lot more than just Hodo Foods. It's about the shifting food landscape through the lens of a unique company that has been doing things their own way for 15 years and continue to stand apart from everyone else. Trust me, you should listen to the entire episode. You'll be surprised by Min's answer to my question on what the food system will look like in 2050 if we manage to change it.
Min Tsai from Hodo Foods. Thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. I'm looking forward to it, Neil. So you started in the food business way before plant-based was cool. Uh, can you give us uh, the backstory of how that happened? <laughs> That's a great question. I love how you say plant-based is cool. Um, well, I certainly started it 15 years ago uh, when plant-based was not even a category yet. And I thought tofu was cool enough um, to actually uh, to launch a company. Um so, so basically, I, I started a tofu business just out of love for the product. And uh, I grew up in Vietnam, Southeast Asia. We eat a lot of tofu. And, uh, you know, when I, when I migrated here and grew up here, I was always a bit disappointed at the tofu I found here. So um, this was like in the early 2000s. And, you know, I was somewhat disillusioned with corporate America and I love food, and I didn't like recession too much. Uh, and and working as an investment banker in finance, I, I saw way too many recessions. So I thought, I love food. Food is recession-proof. Why don't I start a food business? And uh, looking around, I thought, well, you know, I can't start a chocolate business because there's already artisan chocolate. There's artisan coffee. There's artisan cheeses, artisan olive oil. So I thought, why not start an artisan tofu business? And that's uh, that's the silly and crazy beginning of Hodo. Uh, and you didn't have uh, even a family background in food production, or uh, obvi- obviously you were familiar with these foods, but it didn't seem like you had um, any professional expertise uh, or help on that side. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, if you call eating being professional, then <laughs> well, I then do. I call, <laughs> yes, I do too. You know, the funny thing is, um, uh, I mean, my credit card bill to this day, it's like the like eighty, ninety percent of it's on food. So that makes me definitely a professional eater. Um, it's one of the drivers of starting a food business is to to know that you love to eat and you're willing to pay for it. Um, but I don't. I, I didn't have any food development or manufacturing background. I'm a decent cook, but never went to culinary school or anything like that. So a lot of experiments. Yeah, and this was again 15 years ago, and um, I'm, I'm sure there were a few other tofu companies. What did you try to do that was different when you said artisan tofu? Um, let's talk a little bit more about why your tofu is different because if anyone who has tasted it knows it is different compared to other things that are available. Right, right. I think that I think you hit you hit on a key point there. I, I wanted to make a different tofu, um, focusing on taste. Um, my background in finance and economics and, and sort of consulting and such. Um, one of the things I think I did right. Um, back then, um, not the idea of starting a tofu business, but but the research that went behind it. Um, Tofu, to this day, actually, in the U.S., it's perceived more or less as a commodity. And back then, um, as well as today, as a commodity, it's basically um, owned, or there are two companies that have a duopoly over the industry. Um, and they're huge, um, you know, huge companies. 
Um, one is a Korean own called Pomo One, and the other one is a Japanese own called House Tofu. And these two guys basically produce probably 80 to 90 percent of all the tofu you eat from any retailer or uh, in the country. So, so I was able to look at that and thought, well, if they play in the commodity tofu space, I can play in the artisan tofu space. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's sort of one of the purpose of launching a tofu business focusing on taste and an organic and premium and artisan and innovation. It's to break out of the sort of commodity view of tofu. Yeah, and when you say commodity um, tofu um, producers or uh, distributors, they are we talking about organic tofu or are they doing um, non-organic or both? That that's that's a good point. So when I started in in oh four oh five, um, these these large these two large producers, they were actually producing not a lot of organic at all. Um, so one of my entry points was to make our company 100% organic, which is still is to this day. But um, but the commodity element of it is, is related to price. Um, they were competing with each other. Um, it, it's not easy to break into the industry. And so price was really a competitive advantage because of their scale. And, I mean, if you look at tofu today, you can still get tofu for a dollar. And that just that just goes to show that, um, you know, it it is still perceived to some folks as a commodity. That's true, and also one other thing, and we we be best it's best for us to uh, tackle this up front is a lot of people tend to have misconceptions around tofu and soybeans. I mean. Uh, when we talk about soy and corn commodity crops in the U.S., majority of which tend to go as animal feed, um, but I think 60% of soy in the U.S. is fed to animals. Globally, that number is probably as high as 80%, but right. most of that is is uh, not organic soy. So yeah. so one is I'd love to talk more about the, the actual soybeans and where you source them from and, and why that's sure. different. And, um and then we'll, we'll. I also want to get into some of the misconceptions people tend to have about um, soy and health. Right, right. You know what's uh, speaking of the misconception part. What's what's ironic is when I first started out, one of the goals is really to bust these myths about health and and whatnot about tofu. And the way I went about it was to say, hey, listen, you know, this is a this is a product that's very similar to cheese making and it's been consumed in this whole foods form for thousands of years in Asia. Um, it's really getting people to understand that, you know, there's, there's so much history and information about this food that what they, what they read or hear about in the U S it's really a lot of misconception about it. That that's a result of either the dairy industry or the meat industry, or lobbies, and whatnot, or sensationalism, and whatnot. Um, here's the irony: you know, tofu used to have that misconception, but I feel like today everything gets that misconception now. Hmm. It's like you talk about plant-based food, you talk about meat, like everything now has its double edge, yeah. which is crazy. 
Yeah, the moment I think some some food rises up in popularity, there's always some segment um, of the media or or competing industries or consumers that that sort of rise up in opposition, uh, trying to find fault in it. And I think it's the price of success in some ways. But in the case of tofu, it's it's almost bizarre how some of these myths have sort of sustained over the years, even though some of the research around health um, and its impact on, on hormones is, is was completely debunked a long time ago. Um, and of course, right. then you also have people conflating when they hear soy, they think, they, they think not they think GMO soy and they somehow assume that that's the same terrible soy that is being fed to animals which end up in our food ch- end up in our food supply when uh, right. the reality is completely different from all of this right and I think those two the two topics that you alluded a moment ago they do tie together so there are misconceptions about soybeans and soy in general right the fact people people are still, somewhat murky about GMO, non-GMO, and organic. Um, so we, we use 100% U.S. grown certified organic soybeans. And we work with farmers to grow these soybeans for us. Some of them are heirloom soybeans even. So, so the whole notion of organic, when we first started out and wanted to focus on it, was not just you know, related to you know, nutrition and, and, and whatnot, but also plant diversity. People don't recognize that, you know, organic is a lot more about the ability to maintain as many varieties as possible relative to GMO. So for me, that that piece of information often gets lost when people, I mean, people, you ask people why they eat organic and they don't talk about the diversity of plants. Hmm. You know, they talk about, oh, because it's not GMO. Okay, but why is that? It's really allowing more varieties, and soybeans is one of the high, the most highly, you know, GMO types of food out there, and so we're sort of fighting against that to be organic. That's really important for us um, to make sure that the varieties of soybeans continue to to remain robust rather than shrinking due to GMO. Um, and then related to that, because of the misunderstanding on soy. It's the whole notion of whether soy is good for you or bad for you. And, you know, for us, you know, we make a product that's pretty wholesome. Um, it's the same product that's consumed uh, for thousands of years. So we, we just basically was patiently educating people. And we sort of, one of our success has to do with the fact that we unveil this process. We invite our customers and people, chefs, to really come to us and say, let me show you how it's made. Mm. So, you know, 15 years ago, when you Google how tofu is made, or if you Google hodo, there, there's nothing. But today, if you Google how tofu is made, you know, we're up there. People, most of the videos on the making of tofu, it's really us educating people on how it's made. And, and that really has changed people's perception when they know how something is made, which is a big deal. And, um, and also all the science, as you pointed out, um, really has debunked. Um, and, and we've seen the shift already. I, I think the shift is, A, people don't ask those questions so much anymore mm-hmm. about phytoestrogen, about whether soy is good for you or not. I think the question is actually quickly changing 
to how do we incorporate this high-protein plant-based food into our diet. Because plant-based is really blossoming, but a lot of high-protein plant-based is still expensive. Like if you look at nut-based mm-hmm. cheeses and drink, they're super expensive, um, and they have protein. But if you look at sort of oats, there's very little protein there, for example. So people are trying to, I mean, we've been we've been asked to think about including soy milk, um, to adding our tofu into other forms to make sure that the plant-based product um, is robust in protein. In addition to uh, that, I think the fact that your base product is uh, is pretty flavorful on its own gives it an added advantage. Plus, it's a simple product. I mean, you, you really can't get cleaner than than your your ingredient label. Um, and in fact, you know, even I was buying Hodo products before the plant based market boom that happened in the last five six years. And I can tell you from a from a customer or consumer standpoint. The reason I was attracted to your products was because of the flavors and because of the convenience also because it was I was I generally I lived in New York City when I first picked up your products and I remember being wow this is this is pretty simple I can just heat it up and eat it and and one more thing I wanted to add was I was I was always a fan of yuba noodles and I and I think if anyone hasn't tried yuba noodles, I would I would recommend they go try yours because it 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 brought back memories from when I tried yuba noodles as a kid for the first time, and I had a hard time getting get that in most places except restaurants in New York City. Right, right. Well, thank you for that. I think I think you would be my ideal consumer because you sort of you know nailed the two things that we were always looking to do, which is one is taste. I think for us, um, the reason we focus on taste so much is because we want to bust that mess that tofu doesn't taste great. And that that was a low-hanging fruit um, for us to succeed in, in getting people to try our products, even, even before it became a packaged good in the retail store. At the farmer's markets, we were able to say, hey, try this. And they would eat it, and they would say, wow, this is amazing. What is it? And I would tell them it's tofu. And I'd be like, no, that tofu doesn't taste as good. So so for us, we were able to show them, again, like, hey, hey we can make this taste good. You know, we can, we can either teach you how or you can buy it. And the second part that you pointed out is, you know, even for those people who wanted to eat tofu, often they don't quite know exactly what to do. And recipe books are lacking from that standpoint. And then... Even when they follow recipes, it's complicated. So we came up with our line of pretty much grab-and-go, ready-to-eat. And those are the the things that really took off. Um, And today, you know, the majority of what we sell are the, you know, ready-to-eat, already-prepared-for-you tofu products. Um, The nuggets and the noodles and whatnot, you can just really open the back and, and consume them. So convenience is a big deal for us. And, and, you know, we push the envelope of, of really culinary innovation because we have the privilege of working with, with chefs. Um, you know, we, we experiment with them all the time. Um, and that is an amazing opportunity for us to really collaborate and understand trends and ingredients and, and, and whatnot. So that, that's been one of the best things 
and, and one of my favorite things to do is collaborate and, and teach each other and come up with really delicious flavors um, in a convenient uh, ways for, for, for our consumers. You started back 15 years ago when the market must have been very different. And even I'm sure you probably initially started off as very like a specialty product, but I'm sure you've noticed a, a big change in your consumer base over the years, um, partly because uh, healthy eating and clean eating has become a trend. And of course, we can't ignore, but in the past several years, plant-based eating has become a trend. And you have all these new wave of companies that are producing plant-based milks and burgers and other meat substitutes. How has both the business as well as um, your consumer base shifted over the years because of these external changes uh, in the food environment? Um, I think for sure the plant-based movement has really um, helped, um, you know, um, helped all the boats rise, including Hodo. Um, we are fortunate that um, because of the awareness on health, on the environment, um, definitely the consumer base has grown um, for us in retail and in food service. Um, so uh, we definitely benefit from, from the awareness. And I think um, what people are still looking for are the two things you pointed out is if I want to eat a plant-based food, um, what's delicious, what's easy, and even with Impossible and Beyond, it's really delicious and, and easy. That's really allowing them to, to, to really win the market because obviously the environmental message is there, right? But, yeah. but the environmental message for tofu has been... Actually, tofu started out as an environmental message in the 70s. But yeah. it didn't. It didn't really follow up with the delicious and the convenient. Whereas this base, of plant base, is really about delicious. I mean, you look at the variety out there, whether it's cheeses or drinks or, you know, um, meat and whatnot. It's really the focus is on the two things you pointed out: is taste and convenience. Mm -hmm. So, so that is really the key to winning customers. And and the third part is. You know, when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to production and processes, I think that's sort of the, the next wave is, you know, there, there are so many foods historically that sort of had this arc, right? If you look at sushi, if you look at lobster, if you look at so many things, there's a whole arc. Like people started out eating like all the hand, all the, you know, like the California rolls and and the tempuras and the dragon rolls and whatnot. But over time, they go back to the sashimi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that arc is going to basically happen with, with everything. Now, we see that people start eating our ready-to-eat items, but as soon as they know how to use our products and cook, they'll go back to the fresh yuba and the firm tofu. So... Yeah, I mean, it also, one thing to keep in mind is that, as you, you said, tofu really started off in the 70s as the first environmentally friendly food. Um, the hippies were the first one, ones to jump onto it, and maybe they didn't try enough to make it flavorful enough. But, uh, you know, it was tofu and granola almost became kind of like a joke for uh, for people who were crunchy and cared about the planet and cared about 
peace and love. But right. in some ways, I think tofu is having, I think it's time for, to, and again, not to use a technology term, but a 2.0 version of tofu for the new age, um, because tofu is still relevant. And it, it's, I, you know, I find as a, as a consumer, tofu in its many forms, what, what is good about it too, when it's not prepackaged and pre-flavored, because as much as I love that, because it's convenient and it's a great option. When it comes to just a plain block of tofu, you can you can it's so versatile. You can do a lot with it. So for someone who cares about food, and I know you mentioned that you've had um, you've worked with chefs before and and continue to do that. I know you've worked with chefs in San Francisco. It is still such a versatile and sort of interesting food that you can almost make it into so many different things. Um, that uh, the potential is endless, and I think. Maybe this is another trend that's relevant to your arc and your story is that I think the American palate has also been evolving over the last decade or two. So uh, as as much as, you you know, all a lot of the plant based food companies right now are focused on the burgers and the and the American kind of foods there is a lot more interest in eating more flavorful, more international foods. And that's, you can just follow trends in food service because it starts there always. Uh, people are, are going out eating Korean food, Vietnamese food. Uh, Chinese food has always been popular. Um, but you have now this explosion of different cultures and flavors and people no longer just want to eat sandwiches although you know those foods still have a place they're willing to experiment and diversify their palate no i i think you made a good point starting with the the tofu 2.0 comment i think we we've actually used that before too when i first started out it's almost like a tofu 3.0 now if you want to call it that <laughs> but um but but to your point like you know the, the sushi example applies in that if if you if you ask a kid today, like where sushi comes from, it's 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 likely that he or she may not know it's a Japanese food, mm. right? So so basically, success it's really about the fact that you know Italian food, Japanese food, when you don't know when you don't know and don't care. So yeah. it's just delicious food. It's something I love. It's my favorite food. is sushi. My favorite food is pizza. Right. So I think I think for us, you know, success in the long run, it's really when people don't even think that it comes from tofu. Um, but the fact that, wow, this Moroccan cube is amazing as a breakfast item or these nuggets are so delicious. Right. Because yeah. because the form has changed. So so for me, I think that's what we envision. It's basically something that people will eat and say, wow, and then they'll flip to the back of the box and say, okay, so it's got soy and, you know, it's it's got all the ingredients I can understand, but damn, it's delicious. And and I think that's really success for us is, um, is making it delicious using international flavors. Um, and, and I think as far as form, I think you nailed it. Like I joke with people all the time. I said, if you really want me to make a mock meat, I can make that for you, a tofu. But that's not the goal. The goal is to make it delicious. In fact, there's an article about, I think in the Times, 
about how in China um, there's a lot of mock meat being consumed now more than ever before because of the price of pork has gone up so much. Mm-hmm. And and they were saying how, you know, the Chinese people don't need the mock meat to have the texture of meat. They just need a form whereby the protein gets gets to them. So it doesn't have to be like you can have pork belly mock meat, but it doesn't have to have the same texture as pork belly at all. Um and I think I think we're far from that, but for me, making something delicious is more important than um, whether it's a mock something or not. I think in the long run, here's what in some ways I think is going to happen, is people will get introduced to a lot of plant-based products because they're trying the burgers or the, you know, the kind of one-to-one replacements that are going right. to remind them of the thing that they miss when they choose to eat plant-based versus eat meat. Because the huge trend right now is most people who are consuming those products are actually not vegetarians or vegans. They're actually people trying to cut down on their consumption of meat, whether it's for environmental reasons or health reasons. Right. Now, to me, that just creates then, uh, and again, this is all speculation. I, I don't have any data to back this up. But it's a hunch I have is that that then creates a gateway for them to be more open to trying other products and then go on a bit of a journey um, to seek out ones that maybe have simpler ingredient labels so that they can eat it more often. So, for example, here's what happens to people when they get hooked onto a new packaged food. They love it only to then find out that that isn't something you should be eating every day. Right. Because it has some ingredients in it that probably won't be good for you in the long run if consumed in high quantities. Uh, I think another thing you have going for your products is, as you said, it's 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 the simplicity of it. Where once plant based becomes uh, a bigger part of uh, of Americans' diets and hopefully across the world as well, the next step is then okay, how can I find delicious food that is also healthy, that I can consume sure. consistently and that's also convenient. And I think you just you just sort of fit squarely in that category right now we are <laughs> so, so you're, we you're are just, and you're yeah. probably seeing an upswing of consumers based on on that trend as well maybe you can tell me more no no i i, I think i think you're very astute you know like the the consumer base for plant based because of the impossible and the beyond and and you know the the all, all the media attention to that it's only going to increase the size of the consumer base for plant-based food, right? For sure. And we've seen that. Whether whether they're eating it for health reasons or for a sort of a, a one-to-one switch. And what what's amazing is um, we are just an, we are another delicious option that's available, that's innovative, that's really wholesome uh, when people are ready. And we'll see that. We see that happening. Um, so it is a great time to be, you know, the company that we are um, in, in that um, if we continue doing what we're doing, which is having similar protein and nutritional profile, having few ingredients, making sure that it's delicious, um, making sure that, you know, we have really incredible flavors, um, not just domestic, but global flavors. I am I'm I'm very certain and that people will choose us. And and we're pretty sticky. You know, once you eat our product, you'll be like, Well, 
I want to try something else, you know, or I want to get the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think I think we're well positioned, as you point out. Yeah, and you've also done both food service and retail. You kind of mentioned that earlier. And and I want to talk about that a little bit because, of course, your products are – I find your products in Whole Foods near where I live. Um, and, but I'm sure you have much more distribution beyond Whole Foods. But I, I want to talk about food service because a lot of companies in the CPG space in, who have been doing plant-based for for several years now – have chosen to stay out of food service because one of the reasons was they uh, are focused on building their brand. And in food service, traditionally, you would have to provide the product stripped of the brand. And I'm, and maybe that's been your experience as well because if you're going to serve your, your product as part of a, a fast food chain, for example, in the past at least, the fast food chains would just have your ing- product as an ingredient and wouldn't brand it as Hodo Foods is soy. Um, but that seems to be changing a little bit. And maybe it's only changing for the likes of Beyond Meat and Impossible. Because if you look at Carl's Jr. or for that matter, you look at uh, Burger King or you look at Umami Burger, they are they almost spending, I think, <laughs> uh, when you walk into one of those chains, you'll see they're prominently displaying and proudly serving uh, branded plant-based products, uh, saying that they're happy to be carrying the Impossible Whopper or, in fact, I walked into an Umami Burger and people, the, the people working there were wearing Impossible Foods t-shirts. Right. So it's obviously that they're going for, they're doubling down on this plant-based category and going big. Is that a big issue for you? And and also so that m- maybe people don't even know, they've probably eaten your products at certain of uh, restaurants or chains that maybe they don't even know carry Hodo Foods' products? No, I, I think it's interesting. Um, there's two points there. One is we do serve, um, we have our large um, food service business, the biggest being Chipotle. And and Chipotle does brand us on, on their website and such. Chipotle doesn't brand anything in the restaurant, but they brand Hodo in their cups, in their paper bags, and the website and whatnot. So, so the sofritas at Chipotle, it's our tofu. Um, so that's branded. Um, and then, you know, even at Whole Foods and the Silicon Valley where we service the commissary, it's all branded. In fact, our strategy from day one was um, when, before we even work with Chipotle or, or some of the other chains like Sweet Greens and such, we basically... Um, you know, we became sort of the Nyman Ranch of tofu. Um, we adhere to Bill Nyman's Nyman Ranch approach. So if you look at um, Mission Star restaurants that use our products, and there are quite a few, they all have Hodo tofu or Hodo yuba on the menu. Um, so so a lot of our food service is branded, which is fantastic. And um, as far as the impossible and the beyond, I think it's smart of them because what they do in food service, the investment that they put in um, on marketing, it's, it's not too dissimilar to the investment that a CPG company needs to put into launching a retail brand, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, like, it makes sense. Um, it's amazing the, the amount of marketing dollars that go into, um, you know, um, at, uh, the, the restaurants and whatnot. And I think, I think it's fantastic. 
that people, consumers are aware that they're eating a plant-based product. So, yeah, but most of our food service is branded, actually. Oh, that's, I mean, I, I, I probably didn't realize that because I think I, I, the reason I thought of that is because the first time, obviously I knew uh, when Chipotle launched the Sofritas and it, it's, it, it, that was way before this whole second wave, I guess, right. or this new wave of plant-based products are in the news all the time. Um, and I guess I, I had consumed it numerous times without realizing it was actually from Hodo Foods. And I only found out much later, which is why I probably had this <laughs> this idea that all your stuff was not um, not branded. But that's great to hear that. And it's interesting. I mean, Chipotle has been in the news recently with, with some comments about right. uh, some of the newer products. But, you know... Not obviously, I'm sure we all are um, supportive of everyone else in the plant-based movement. But in some ways, that was a backhanded compliment for Hodo Foods that uh, <laughs> they chose to work with uh, uh, with you and 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 that your food meets what they consider to be their standards. Right. No, I I think it's funny. Um, you know, you you begin to hear that now. Um, in, in my mind, surprisingly fast. You know, like, and you can attribute that to the success of sort of beyond impossible, as you pointed out earlier. Um, but, but I think you, you, you have Brian Nichols of Chipotle. You have folks over at Panera. You have you have folks over at Whole Foods, John Mackey, talking about it. All surprises for us, to be honest with you. Um, because, you know, we believe in, in the broad, broad category. Um and, and for us, you know, it's a win if you eat plant-based overall. So, yeah, and I also think all the products have their time and place, right? And I think that that's the beauty of what's happening right now in this space is that uh, it is not about one company versus the other, unless, of course, they have specific SKUs that are literally in the same category and they're fighting for the same business. I guess impossible and beyond would be, would be that example, but uh, they're, they're kind of in the same space and kind of fighting each other on the same issues. But at the same time, not, not really because there's enough room and, and there's diversity for more products to come in. Plus there's, you know, People eat three or more times a day. They're going to eat more than just burgers all the time. And, sure. And, and you need um, – so I think you have this interesting confluence of trends where um, by, by having products in the plant-based category that are packaged products that are still can be held up to a high standard when it comes to health, I think is a good thing because I think it, it kind of sets an aspiration for everyone else. Uh, well, some plant-based products that are trying to be meat or just be a plant-based version of meat may never reach that level of, of, of healthy standards, but they are fulfilling an important function of replacing an otherwise unsustainable and unhealthy product, which is meat from animals. So sure. I think all these products kind of have their, have their place. And by having flavor-forward options that also can tout... Um, health as a as a as an as an advantage because you have minimal ingredients mostly things that people can find in their kitchen i think that's a i'm starting to see that trend a lot more from some of the newer companies i talk to where right. they lead with the fact that hey you know our stuff is is simple 
it's you can you can make this at home if you had the patience to do so. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I, I think that's a key point, right? I think I think we're beginning to do that too. We've always we're beginning to do more, but we we've always like encourage you um, through teaching you how to how to make something. But but increasingly, we're investing in a lot more recipe related marketing to get people to to experiment and whatnot. But I also think, I think part of the, one part of the confusion out there is um, you have plant-based for sure and, and it's good for everybody. But I think when we, when I think people are confused, not just in terms of pure ingredient versus not pure and processed versus not processed. I think, I think it's important for people to know how things are made more so now than ever before because there's just so much data out there. Like, how do you make it? What do you make it with? Is it organic? Those are questions that I think increasingly our consumers are asking, more than even when I started out, right? So I think yeah. as any food company, whether you're plant-based or not, um, as you pointed out, especially the newer ones, I think they lead with like, hey, let me show you let me share with you how we make it, what's in it, and whatnot. And I think that's part of the story. That has to be part of the story, not just not just the broader story of, you know, like we we know eating for the environment alone is not going to do it. You know, save the planet type food alone just can't save the planet. It has yep. to come with taste. Has to come with convenience. Has to come with like, you know. Like everything has to save the planet, organic, et cetera. What you said there is a really, really important point. And, and I think it's important to underscore that because it is also this, it's this trend towards transparency, which is where we are headed in the food industry. And I, if you look at it, you'll see that in it's happening in the beverage space. All the big soda companies of the Coca-Colas and Pepsis are very aware of that. Yeah. Is that the, and it's partly you can you can point to certain trends that have led to it, which is the rise of this new generation of millennials and now Gen Z that are just way more informed. It could be the rise of uh, the information age where you can basically do, do a quick Google search and find out what's in most food that you're consuming. Right. And where it is becoming tougher and tougher for companies to talk a big talk without also backing it up with the real uh, facts on how they produce their products. And so I think this is something that even, um, I think John Mackey mentioned the last time I had him on the podcast, where he, when I asked him about the future, his answer was the future is going to be about complete transparency. There will be no mystery about what is in your food. You will you will see food and you will know exactly what's in it. You will know exactly where it is grown. You will know exactly what the inputs that went into it and what the impact on the environment may be. And maybe there'll be some technology involved in this process, um, blockchain or whatever it may be. Right, but, right. Uh, but I think that's, if you, if companies start preparing for that future, and I think you just... You you just happen to be doing the right thing all along, where you can proudly you can proudly bring people into your the the, the facility where you manufacture tofu, and proudly show that that becomes the selling point. As much as when you consume this, it's also a better choice for the planet or your health, uh, or for other reasons. Yeah, no, it's, I I think John is right, and I think 
were there because, you know, when I talk, I mean, when I work with consult with smaller food startups and they're so hung up on the IP, I just laugh. Mm -hmm. I'm like, dude, <laughs> forget about the IP. You know, like food doesn't, food shouldn't have IP. Yeah. You know, food is, food needs to be transparent. If you rely on the IP to make a, to make a living, you know, like <laughs> forget it, your ingredients, the percentage and whatnot. Sure. That's part of your IP, you know, but, but there's no secret sauce. You can't have secret sauce. Right. That is, that is so fascinating that you said that because I've been hearing that so often lately that, um, that, and I think I know where that's coming from. I think to, to, to be fair, the startups who say that, the reason they say that is because of the kind of investors that are funneling money sure. into this industry. And when they look at, a lot of them have our tech investors also. Right. When they look at a food company, they're thinking, well, what's the unique? And they're almost looking at it as its software. Like, what is unique about this uh, this thing? If Can anyone just make this? And what's so special about what you're doing? Um, it, it's, it's a recipe. It's not a, it's not a product. And I think you just kind of showed the fallacy in that thinking because by, by making proprietary technology based foods as, uh, as much as we do need technology and all food involves the use of technology, uh, all food processing involves the use of technology. But when your unique selling point is the fact that you have some secret tech that, is makes your food amazing what you inadvertently doing is then shrouding that food in secrecy for the consumer also who wants to know what's in your food exactly you know like i mean you you, you hit the nail because of some tech like you know tech investment tech is about ip i mean if you look at biotech even right mm -hmm. a lot of biotech is ip we are everything is basically coming together a lot more from the investment standpoint, from from the consumer standpoint, you know, like the whole notion of food as medicine. Well, if you believe food is medicine, wow, look at look at where the lines are blurring, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. so so for me, this everything it's coming together. But at the end of the day, you know, people still when it comes to food and what people put in their mouth, you know, three times a day, it's really still going to be. Wow, this is delicious. Wow, I can get this anywhere so convenient. Well, what what is it that I'm am I eating? Yeah. That makes it so delicious. That makes it so convenient. That makes it so economical. You know? If they know all that, the decision is very easy, as John Mackey said. Hmm. Um so so I think I think, you know, they're they're a different customer base. You know, yeah. being in California and whatnot, it, it, you know, you and I fall into the more sort of potentially like we're sort of food geeks. Hmm. So, so we dive a little deeper. But, but I think anyone who's interested in food and, and uh, over time, especially the, the younger generation, you know, my kids, your kids, the teenagers, oh my God, they know so much more than we did when we ate at their age. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's also, I think what you're highlighting is, and, and maybe 
there's early signs of this trend and it always starts off in the coasts and then it and it starts to slowly spread and and I think it's definitely a trend also with the younger generation is that as much as we've been saying for years that decisions and when it comes to food are made based on price taste and convenience I think there's this fourth pillar emerging of transparency or trust and and maybe right. we're in the early stages of that but it is undoubtedly the you know and and as you said it's about the confluence of all these different trends it's it's people realizing that the food you eat can make you sick um or it can actually make you thrive and feel great uh the food you eat can destroy the world or it can save the world the food you eat is and so obviously when everything and i also it's another point i i tend to make a lot which is when all the products you know, kind of are the same or similar tasting because everyone's figured out when every other food company figures out that people want to eat flavor-packed tofu or yuba noodles, they'll all start producing that. Then the things that really set companies apart are um, things like transparency, things like brand, things like story, which is, again, things that younger people value because for them they they want to buy into something that they truly believe is is uh real versus something that has been manufactured in an ad agency no it, it's funny because for me like when i first started out in the first decade we we've been doing this for 15 years i kept hoping that one of the two big tofu companies would do what we do because it would bring so much more attention to the space Right, I always poke them. I know them really well. I'm like, hey, make value-added stuff. Make it delicious. Make it convenient. Don't play the commodity game anymore. You know, and they they haven't. They're still the same. They benefit. They they win playing the commodity game. So mm-hmm. they stay in that space. But you know, like, can you imagine if there's like a Hodo competitor that's twice as big or five times as big as Hodo? That'd be amazing. And, and in some ways, the Beyond Meat and the Impossible is doing that for us, mm-hmm. right? They, we don't really compete with them, but yeah. they are bringing awareness to the space, uh, the broader space, than ever before. Um, and and that awareness, it's only going to lead to more awareness. Yeah. And, you know, uh, obviously, you've, you've been running the company 15 years, Um and we just talked about startups and why they make the decisions that they do. It's partly driven by investors. How have you been um, funding the business? Um, and what are your sort of next steps as you as you look at the opportunities in this space? Right, right. Well, fortunately for us, uh, I was on an investment panel recently, and I joked that all the funding options today, none of it existed when we started out. You know, today you have crowdfunding, you have tech money coming in, you have, you know, private equity money, you have food-specific VC. Um, there's so many options now, right? Whereas when we started out, there, there weren't really any food VCs at all, right? Um, yeah. You know, private equity was not even that big. Um, so we, we've been very fortunate that we've been able to grow very incrementally and reinvesting, you know, our profits into building our brand and, and building our production. And, and that's more or less our approach. Um, and, and, you know, as far as sort of what we're thinking about, um, we need to be prepared for 
the next few years where the demand for our, our product is growing. You know, Poto, as you pointed out, because we've been around long enough, we've been on the shelf long enough, people know who we are, people, um, you know, trust our brand. They're, they're clamoring for what's next. So, you know, we're not going to do anything different than what we've done. It's just whatever we do now has has a, a, a louder and a, a more of an echo effect because of the reach that we have. Um, you know, working with Target, working with Whole Foods, with Chipotle, you know, and, you know, with Safeway, with Costco, these chains, you know, there's so many grocers out there. Um, so, so there's a lot of demand for our products in the grocery stores. And, and, you know, we do well there and, uh, and it's recognized there. So, so that's where I see, um, tremendous opportunity for us. It's, it's really, you know, our brand in, in the retail space and in the food service space, I think it's pretty clear that um, folks like Chipotle and folks that really want something that um, less processed, we're it for them. You know, we can R&D for them. We can collaborate with them, and we'll see that. So, again, it's um, nothing unusual, but just the scale is going to be bigger. And um, and then as far as product innovation, um I think I think we're in the next 12 months. Um, we're doing a lot of research in flavors and and texture um, to come out with something that hopefully, you know, will be like stuff that we come on in the past, like the Moroccan cubes. That's really so popular now. Um, you know, our cube products are so easy; you can do everything with it. People are, mm-hmm. you know, pan frying and put in tacos, throwing on salad, eating it for breakfast, scramble. It's amazing what people do with it. So, so I think we, I don't think we need to do much to, to sort of stay the course. What do you think? What should we do? <laughs> I guess Mike, before I answer that, I'd love to know if you, if you have plans to expand beyond tofu, or are you going to stay focused on that? Oh, wow. Yeah. I think, I think our brand is pretty poised. Um, mm-hmm. We go beyond a tofu-based product. Um, uh, we we're we're not sure which yet, you know, because mm-hmm. because the demand for our, our current product is still um, so big. So we're, we're building capacity for that. But um, but it would be so much fun to to come up with a snack or a drink, um, you know, under the Hodo umbrella brand uh, one day. That would be really fun for me as a CEO too. You know, to, to do some of that, but yeah, uh, I'm, it, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna, I was gonna come back to the question, like what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, where we ought to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I obviously seems like you're already far ahead of most companies that have started out in the last few years because you have that advantage of, of being around for this amount of time. Um, and at the same time, being very original in how you've approached uh, the the food that you make, which is, it, it sort of comes back to what you said in the beginning, is you may not have experience in the food manufacturing industry, but you you were enthusiastic about eating. And sometimes that leads to the best outcomes, because if you're trying to create good food, first and foremost, you have to create delicious food. Um, I think 
one of the things that I think the big opportunity I see definitely, and we've kind of touched on it today, is this idea that, you know, tofu or soy-based products kind of need, uh, need I wouldn't say a, a rebrand, it needs like a new story. And I think Hodo is poised to be that company to tell that story. And I think you're doing that today itself, which is, you know, tofu has this this dull bland almost tofu is associated with <laughs> dullness and blandness that has to be changed and especially for this new generation of of uh, uh of young people who um who want to learn more who are intrigued about what's in their food who have access to all the information possible on the internet i think the story of the the true story of tofu the fact that it is uh, good for you. It's great for the planet. It can be delicious. Um, is the story that needs to be told, and I think I think you you're the best company to do that. Fantastic, and and I'm doing it on on your podcast now. <laughs> this is the first step, right? We can That's we right. can say we can mark the date that this is when it started. That's so I right. think yeah, it's it's kind of uh, I guess another thought I had as you were answering that question. Um, earlier about um, what gets you excited as the CEO and as someone who started this business uh, and has been at it now for 15 years is what sort of drives you at this point because you're you're not a you're not a early stage startup entrepreneur you're a seasoned businessman and you've been running a successful food manufacturing business where you know, you've solved the problems that some of these new startups that just have a, you know, prototype product, which has got a lot of IP maybe in it, but have no idea how to manufacture food, have no idea about distribution. You've already solved those challenges. So you're at this stage where, again, it's a, it's a great place to be where you have an established business and you have these trends, all these, these wins moving uh, in your favor. Um, what what keeps you excited and, and what are you most looking forward to uh, with Hodo and, and your role in this, this industry in the years ahead? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that's a good question because, um, you know, as, as a CEO and founder, um, th there's no shortage of things to solve and things to do. Um, and I have an amazing partner and business partner and, and uh, a really amazing team to support me in the Hodo endeavor. Um, I think I think where we are now is, um, given the interest on plant based, um, it, it's really to to remain part of the conversation. You know, where there's and conferences and and talks and whatnot to sort of bookend. You know, the the sort of the the technology, so to speak, um, to represent sort of the original plant-based food point of view um, and, and to be there to sort of give some context to, you know, especially in the West, you know, how how we look at this is like so amazingly new, but the context is that it's not that new. It's just new here. <laughs> yeah. You know, That's like... True. Like I liken it to like when when the whole like in the U.S. we're all excited about crowdsourcing and microfinance, 
I'm like, hello, that's been happening all over the world for many, many years. We just call it something different, you know? So, So I think that context, being the senior in the room when it comes to um, you know, the space. It's something that I look forward to to doing, um, to providing the context to. Um, sort of a point-counterpoint um, type. It, it's representing plant-based from that perspective. It, it's something that we do and we do well in, in a very reasonable season way, like not like not from a marketing perspective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. something that I look forward to doing um, more. Um, it's communicating and educating um, and giving context to to this space that we call plant-based today. I think the space really needs that, and I think you you're definitely um, you're right on that point. I, I notice it a lot as um, it's people being naive, but sometimes almost being arrogant that they don't need help and they can figure it out. And I think we we just are at this point where we've got to acknowledge that this. This industry is growing fast and it can grow faster uh, if we can all kind of look around and see who are the elders, so to speak, in the movement who can guide the process and at least provide some context around these these changes and what what people need to anticipate as they're growing their food company. So right. it's all really good stuff. And, and I think you're definitely well positioned to do that. You know, I end every podcast with this question. It's born out of the this this thinking that we are the problems we have from a sustainability standpoint uh, and the problems we have with our food system today is, is really born out of our our, our our rate at which our population has grown over the years and at the rate at which right. we've industrialized our food system. And so we've reached this point now where we're about 7.6 billion people on the planet. And if we keep going business as usual, consuming the amount of meat, dairy, and eggs that we do on a global level, uh, which is rising incredibly fast, especially in countries like China and India and other parts of Asia and Africa, uh, we are not going to be able to feed the world in a sustainable uh, and healthy way come, say, the year 2050 when there's 10 billion people on the planet. Right. So the question I, I ask everyone is, um, we we obviously have to work on fixing that. We have to uh, make changes in our food system. We have to make changes in the way people consume food. And this whole shift towards plant-based foods is all part of that trend. Um, but but the question really is that if, if we are successful, if Hodo continues to deliver flavor-packed, convenient food uh, in food service and retail across the country, and who knows beyond that, um, what is your vision of, of a food system that is that is better in the year 2050, like your perfect view of what the food system could look like? Wow. That's a, that's a big question. Um, well, I'll give you, I'm generally an optimist, um, but, but this answer might not be the most optimistic um, in that. I don't think, I don't think the, the system, it's going to be like, it's, it's way broken when we, you know, 10, 15 years from now, when the population reached 10 billion, I think, I think the system's been pretty broken for a while now. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, I think the key to attempting to fix it, which, uh, to be honest with you, uh, it would be too too much hubris for me to even consider that uh, from the Hodo perspective, because 
because, you know, like when I started the business, we thought eating local, eating organic were ways to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't, you know? So so I think the, the question, the answer, it's a much broader answer, which is, one, you know, I think Michael Pollan alluded to it a little bit, which is vote with your dollars in terms of what you buy to eat. Know what you buy and and how and where that money goes and where the food is made, that information, that transparency that we talked about. And then finally, that transparency, part of that is know what you put in your body, but more importantly, just everything in moderation. You know, mm-hmm. I think Bittman talks about that. Those guys know what they're talking about. You know, just don't eat too much. Eat mostly plant-based food. Mm-hmm. And you can eat everything as long as you cook it yourself. Yep. Make it yourself. Those are those ideas, if we can do that, I think we have much more hope than whether it's, you know, the plant-based movement took off or not. Because we don't know what's on the other end if, you know, if we have to grow so much peas and so much whatnot, how that's going to impact. Like, it's a pendulum going to swing way over there. Or like, yeah. you know, we know cows are bad for animal raising, but it's regenerative agriculture. If raising cattle, you know, in small, you know, rotational way, really bad for the planet? I'm not sure, for example. So, mm-hmm. so I think... You know, the, the problem of the planet cannot be solved by any one sort of movement. It needs to be solved as sort of individual having the knowledge um, in terms of what what they eat and how that impacts. It, it's really that knowledge and, and the time to discover that. It's what's going to help. Yeah, I love that answer. I think it's a... It's, um... It's a humble one, and it's a it's probably an, an accurate one too. Is that we're not uh, we're not going to have one thing that's going to solve this gigantic, complicated mess that we have right now. That, as you said, has been a mess for many years, and it's going to take multiple efforts. Sure, and I think it's great that that Pat Brown and Ethan Brown want to want to play a big role in that. Mm-hmm. Kudos to them for sure, but I, I'm not in that league. Um, you know, I don't I don't think. I, I, I don't tell people eat a lot of tofu is going to save the world. I think it, it plays a role, but eat it because it's delicious. And then you happen to save the world too. <laughs> that's <laughs> and the that's, message. That's, and that's the future we want. We want delicious food that just, you know, where the sustainable choice is the default and right. delicious choice. Yeah, it's um, like it happens that what you ate it's good for the planet and good for you, but you eat it because it's delicious. Yeah. Well, on that note, this has been a fun, exciting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, we we ended up covering a lot more than I even anticipated we'd get into, but um, really exciting to get to know you and to understand the the history of Hodo and and in and in some ways kind of anticipate what the future is going to look like and. Can't wait to see uh, Hodo carrying the flag for Tofu 3.0 and beyond in the next uh, few years. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure for me as well. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
to learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.